Echo Chamber, brought to you by The Homes Report and produced by the international broadcast specialist, Marketeers for DC. Okay, Paul, welcome back onto the Echo Chamber podcast. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. First podcast of 2016. So this is, um, this is quite a moment. But we're going to talk about a few different things. In particular, your, um, your analysis that, that posted in the last few days, are where you reviewed mergers and acquisitions activity in the public relations industry in 2015, um, made for very interesting reading. Uh, but in particular, the headline finding, I think, will have surprised, perhaps surprised many people, that of the 61 industry acquisitions that were covered by the Holmes Report uh, last year, 35, which is 57%, were made by independent firms. So not only are independent firms outgrowing the market, they are now also out-acquiring their publicly held peers. This is a revival, um, in many ways, of a project that we did annually um, about a decade ago. Um, and I'm not sure why it faded away, um, uh, you know, other than, other than the amount of time and effort that goes into creating it. Mm. Uh, but it's certainly true that when we were doing this 10 or 12 years ago, the names that popped up most often were the ones that you would expect. It was uh, Omnicom and Interpublic and WPP making most of the acquisitions. Um, maybe a Huntsworth here or there, a Publicis here or there. Um, but it was certainly the big publicly traded holding companies that were out in the market doing all of the acquiring. Mm -hmm. uh, that is clearly not the case today. Um, WPP remains moderately active, um, but I think it's telling that WPP was no more active um, in 2015 than, for example, Edelman um, or, you know, even Lorente and Cuenca. Um, so, um, you know, the, the balance has shifted. Today it is um, very ambitious independent firms making multiple deals. And it is, um, I don't want to say unambitious independent firms, but, but you know, sort of ordinary, well-managed independent firms making what I guess I would call acquisitions of opportunity. Yeah, but I mean, with that in mind, though, do you feel like the, the value of the deals has to be taken into account as well? So even if WPP, for example, made only four acquisitions, do, do you think maybe they might have spent more than, than um, for example, Llorente y Cuenca? Um, oh, I, I, there's no doubt that, mm. um, that, that bigger agencies make bigger deals, bigger holding companies make bigger deals. I mean, mm. we, we should expect that. There were only... Um, I, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and... Uh, and, and say that there were only six deals that involved firms with fee income of more than 10 million. Um, okay. It's US dollars. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there, there simply weren't the kind of big deals um, that you, you might have seen a decade ago. Mm. Um, and, uh, and, and of those, 
you know, the number one deal um, was uh, Chime being bought by WPP mm-hmm. um, and uh, WPP's acquisitions in Brazil um, were among those top five. Right. Um, so, mm. you know, the, the majority of the, you know, 50 of the deals were for what I would call uh, small, not even mid-size, but mm-hmm. small firms. Um, and a lot of them, I, you know, I, it, fee income is not available for all of these agencies. Right. Uh, but I think it would be reasonable to guess that um, that that half of them were for firms with fee income of less than two million. And the thing you hear often is people people saying that there just aren't there aren't that many firms above ten million that can be acquired. Is that is that a fair statement? Do you think, or is that just? Um become a convenient excuse um yeah that's i mean that's an interesting observation um and i think that it i i do think that it's a little self-serving mm-hmm. to say that so if you look at the list of the top 250 firms in the world which we conveniently call every year yeah there are a little more than 140 firms mm-hmm. um, with fee income of 10 million or above. Mm. Um, yeah, without without sort of going through and doing a count right now, I'm guessing that 100 of those are independent. Mm. So there's still plenty. Um, so there are there are plenty of targets now. Mm. Um, you know, I think a couple of things have happened. I think that. Um, the big holding companies have gotten a little more selective. Mm. Um, you know, one of the one of the trends that we pointed to um, this year was the fact that nearly every acquisition had either um, you know added a added a new service component to the acquiring firm, a specialist practice or an industry sector focus, mm. um, or expanded the geographic reach of the firm, either within its domestic market or internationally. Um, I think that, um, you know, if, if, you're, if you're at a big holding company and you're looking, at a, looking to buy a firm that will do one of those two things, um, then the number of targets is considerably smaller. Right. Um, sure. I think the number of targets that are well run and would pass due diligence is smaller still. Mm. And the number of firms that meet both of those criteria and are willing to sell to a big holding company um, is smaller still. So, um, you know, how many realistic targets there are among those hundred or so independents um, is an entirely different question, and I do think that I do think that it's a real a real development that um, you know we've we've done research into this ourselves. We've we've seen this in some of the research that Davis and Gilbert has presented at the Global PR Summit. Um, a lot of agencies, a lot of agency principals, would much rather sell to another independent than to a holding company. Mm. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Let's talk about that for a moment. Um, why? I think there is a perception, justified or not, that um, that holding companies 
um, have a one-size-fits-all approach to acquisitions. Um, so it is difficult for their, um, their, their, their business model um, to accommodate truly special firms. And nearly everybody who's selling thinks that they have a truly special firm. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there is also this perception that when you get sold to a big agency, um, anything that made your firm distinctive or special will immediately be jettisoned and you'll be absorbed into a sort of faceless collective. Um, and then I think there's the, the you know, very realistic view that two-thirds, three-quarters, whatever the number is, of, of big agency acquisitions um, fail by, by any sort of meaning, meaningful criterion. Um, they don't meet the expectations of either party in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. And why do you think the publicly held companies, um, certainly on, on the evidence of, of, of this analysis, um, are less interested in acquiring public relations agencies? Do you, is this simply that they are more focused on buying other types of businesses or have they maybe calculated that um, they're not getting the returns that, that they uh, perhaps are hoping for from from their existing PR agencies. So why buy more? Um, I think some of it is that there are juicier, more tempting targets in other sectors. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no question that digital and social is sexier right now than traditional public relations. Um, and so when holding companies look to spend big, um, that's where they're spending. Mm. Um, I think there are, I think there's also the fact that there are fewer markets where the big holding companies don't have a presence right now. Oh, right. Um, so there are fewer gaps to fill, mm. perhaps, than there were a few years ago. Mm. And the gaps that do exist tend to be in markets where due diligence can be challenging. Um, they, they tend to be in developing markets. It was interesting that, you know, of all of the sort of um, the, the sort of markets that people were making um, geographically motivated acquisitions in, Latin America um, was clearly number one. Yeah, uh, that is interesting. Given, that's you know economic conditions um, in many Latin American markets. Yeah, I mean, I think everybody's everybody's looking at the long term and figuring that these are markets that are going to be important and they're going to want to have a presence in. Mm. Um, I think what, what makes Latin America interesting, and and it may be that you know you can you can get a bargain today uh, because of the depressed international uh, economic conditions, and that makes sense. Mm. Um, but I also think that um, I, I also think that it's interesting that that's a market where. Um, Due diligence has traditionally been very difficult. Um, mm, yes. It's often it's often hard to figure out what's real. Um, there are a lot of firms that um, that that appear not to be sort of meeting um, U.S. or U.K. standards of financial reporting. Um, and so, you know, to a certain extent, you're taking a chance on, on those firms. Um, but it's also a market where, um, 
where most of the multinationals are underdeveloped. I mean, there are clearly a couple, uh, like Burson Marstella, um, uh, that that have had um, a presence in that region for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of others who are almost entirely absent or who are there through minority investment uh, or who are there through a network of affiliates. Um, and, um, you know, I think that's that's driving a lot of interest right now. And of the acquiring agencies, um, Edelman, you, you, have, you have written, are, you know, the, obviously the world's biggest PR firm, also the most acquisitive in 2015 for acquisitions. Um, so Dabo in the Middle East, Smithfield in the UK, um, Ergo in Germany, and Position in uh, Colombia, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the year before that, in 2014, Edelman bought um, Deportivo in Sweden, Elan in France. Yeah. Um, so that's six acquisitions, I think. I, I might be missing uh, another one in 2014. Um, yes, Cream in India, I think. Yeah. So seven. Um, this is uh, certainly um, seems to be a new phenomenon. Edelman was not always a particularly acquisitive firm, was it? Um, no, I think they would have been, uh, you know, on the on the fringes of the activity that we examined ten years ago. Right. Um, they made an occasional strategic acquisition, um, but they certainly weren't hoovering up firms at the rate of um, at the rate of their Omnicom into public or WPB own yeah. competitors. And in fact, that sort of gave rise to, um, I don't think we had memes 10 years ago, but but let's call it the conventional wisdom that uh, Edelman would not be able to keep pace with right. um, Fleischmann and Weber and Ketchum and others um, because they didn't have the deep pockets necessary to go out and make big acquisitions. Um, so yeah, this is a this is a much more recent phenomenon. And it's, I mean, it it seems to be at least partially motivated by Edelman's desire to become the first billion dollar PR firm. Um, but notwithstanding that, I mean, these are all good firms they've bought. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think. Look, clearly, um, clearly, Edelman uh, wants to grow quickly. Um, sees value in growth. Um, doesn't have to be quite as concerned about margin as um, some of its competitors. But at the same time, you can see a clear strategic rationale for each of these deals. They are buying pretty good firms um, and they are buying firms that fill a very clear need, whether it's a new capability, the you know digital and social capability that, that they've added through acquisitions like Cream, um, or corporate and financial in Germany, um, which is a very significant market there, um, and one that Edelman didn't really play in um, under its own brand. It was a consumer firm in Germany yeah. until the Ergo acquisition. Um, regions of the world where there's clearly going to be um, healthy growth in in the next few years, like the Middle East, and so, you know, Darbo is a good deal. Uh, financial PR in London through Smithfield. I mean, they're, they're all deals that have a very clear um, sort of strategic 
imperative behind them. But seven acquisitions in, in two years, or, or um, it seems like a lot to digest. Um, yes and no. Um, you know, I think, I think what's interesting is that, you know, some of these are not necessarily being, um, being digested in this, in the sort of traditional sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I would, I would argue that, you know, in the case of Agen Salan in Paris, that was more a case of the acquiring for the acquired firm um, digesting the local operation of Edelman. Um, if you look at some of the others, I mean, I suspect that Ergo in Germany, for example, uh, will continue to operate, um, you know, under its own power and with its own um, sort of vision and focus. Uh, rather than rather than being integrated into the broader Edelman operation, yeah, I think um, that's, that's likely given what we yeah know of German. So firms. you know, I I don't think I don't think they're trying to I don't think they're trying to necessarily integrate all of these things into a greater Edelman as much as they are create separate specialisms or um, separate geographies that that will continue to function. You know, semi semi autonomously for at least a, a few years. Right. Okay. So easier to handle. Um, and and again, I you know, I, I, this is an off the top of my head um, sort of number, so it it could be some way off. But I'd be very surprised if those seven acquisitions added up to a um, hundred million in fee income. I'd guess it was closer to fifty than a hundred. Um, and that being the case, and Edelman being a seven hundred and fifty million, eight fifty now, eight fifty million agency, um, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that's, um, you know, it, it's ten percent, it's ten percent growth through acquisition. It ought to be manageable. Mm. And again, I, you know, I say all that with the proviso that I still believe that two thirds of the deals that go down in our industry don't work out. Yeah, that's a conservative estimate, I think. Yeah, I, I think it probably is. Um, are you seeing, you mentioned this earlier, but the flexibility offered by independents when it comes to acquisitions in terms of how the deals are put together, um, are you seeing that change? Because, you know, obviously with, with the publicly held groups, you know, you've got the classic earnout deal, which doesn't appear to work for anyone, um, as far as I can tell, uh, except maybe the... Uh, the, the 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 CFO at the at the holding group who wants the um, the, the nice in, the quarterly increase, yeah. um, but uh, are you seeing that change? Are we seeing different mechanisms coming coming in and and, and better ways to structure these deals? Um, so with the proviso that we don't necessarily get to look under the hood of these mm -hmm. deals in any way that is you know, verifiable. So, right, you know, sure. a lot of this is anecdotal word That's of mouth. That's okay. Speculate. Uh, and, and, and with the proviso that even if I could look under the hood and, and get a, get a glimpse of the contract, um, I'm not sure I'm smart enough to, to decipher it. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think, I think that, that you see, um, I think you have to look at what motivates 
people to sell, right? Yeah. And and yeah, so some of it is going to be exit strategy. Some of it is going to be I, I've gone to the end of my career as an entrepreneur and I just want to cash out and go away. Mm -hmm. um, but but in many cases, it's much more about, you know, can I create a new opportunity for myself? Can I take what I've been doing on a local level and do it on a global level? Can I do it with the resources of a big parent company behind me or even, a, you know, a, a bigger parent company behind me? Um, that's clearly been the motivation for some of the people who sold to what I would call mid-size holding companies like MDC, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and those deals seem to do better at accommodating the ambitions of the entrepreneurs involved. Um, and so when you sit down, for example, with the, um, with the founders and owners of some of the firms that have sold to Finn Partners, for example, there's a, a genuine excitement there. Um, about being able to work within a particular kind of firm uh, with shared values and um, and a partnership-driven management model. That's true. Um, and you don't now, see that having with... said that, you know, I, I've spoken to people who were just as enthusiastic about joining an Omnicom or a WPP agency three weeks uh, after the deal was done. But and when months, you sit down with them two years later... Yeah, exactly. That's that's the point I was going to make. You you might see that excitement with a with a holding group sale initially, but you often don't a, a year or two down the line. Um, it seems to be that that's that seems to be more of a short term focused uh, process when when someone sells to a, a publicly held group, and and often the founders don't stick around. Do you think they're more likely to stick around when they're bought by an independent? So I don't have I don't have any data at all to back this up, but my instinct is that if they want to, there's often the greater opportunity to mm. you know the, the, those deals are, um, you know they're they're more personal. Um, there's perhaps a little more opportunity to look under the hood of the acquiring firm, yeah. and 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 get a sense of you know whether you're going to be compatible or not. Um, you know a lot of them are so. Uh, are, are smallish deals that it's almost more like being hired than it is by being bought. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, I, I do think, I do think that there are different, different kinds of, there's a different feeling to some of those deals. So Interpublic has now started acquiring again. Um, and there was a period where they just didn't make any acquisitions. I think that's, I think that's right for, for several years. Um, yeah. But well, we've certainly seen, in PR, yes. Right, certainly in PR. And we, but we've seen um, Weber Shandwick and Golan now acquiring in uh, Brazil, Sweden, China. And also, um, by the time this comes out, this podcast comes out, we will, um, we will know that Weber Shandwick has acquired Revive, uh, a healthcare firm in the US. Um, so they're, they're, they've certainly come back to the acquisition market in a big way. According to your analysis, though, it seems like Omnicom has, has, has left the acquisition market. They didn't make any deals in, in 2015. 
Yeah. Um, I mean, I think there are a couple of interesting things there. I mean, the, the first is the transformation over the past decade or so, uh, or, or so from interpublic uh, being possibly the worst parent company mm. um, in the, for, for PR agencies to a, undoubtedly the best. Right. Um, among the, the big holding companies. Interesting. Um, and secondly, um, the fact that both Weber, Shandwick and Golan are significantly outperforming their um, peers over the last few years. Yeah. Uh, which of those is um, which of those was chicken and which was egg is um, perhaps an interesting discussion. Mm -hmm. um, but there's no doubt that it's a lot easier to get deals done when you're performing well. And Weber Shandwick's been performing well. Um, and Golan's been performing well the last few years. Um, and so, you know, you've seen um, Weber Shandwick be able to do quite big deals like Prime in Sweden um, and, uh, and Golan do quite big deals like Magic in China. Um, and now the you know, Revive Health, which is not quite at the same scale, but is still... Uh, it's still 10, what's, what is it, 9 million, something yeah, like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, pretty... Yeah, it's a decent size. It's a mid-size mm -hmm. firm, a good mid-size firm. And meanwhile, Omnicom's PR unit, as we know, you know, struggles to has struggled to to record meaningful growth um, over the last few years. So, perhaps with that in mind, it's not that surprising that no acquisitions were made in 2015. Or you could argue the opposite. Maybe they should be making more acquisitions. Yeah, I think. Um... I think for most of the big holding companies, the pursuit of critical mass is not a priority mm -hmm. to the same extent as, um, you know, as, as, as being conventionally successful. Right. Um, and so just, you know, I, I don't think that anybody's going to go out to buy for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I if I if I was looking at Omnicom, I would I would I think say that um, combining some of their existing assets is more likely than making bold new acquisitions. Um, if if the plan is to you know hold on to a top five spot or um, you know fill a, fill two of the top five spots globally, yeah. Um, you know, if 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 that's the focus. Yeah, sure. Uh, no deals either from Blue Focus, which was also, I think, a bit of a surprise, given that um, they have acquired a, a lot, um, certainly in terms of value, uh, in in the few years leading up to 2015. Um, but perhaps not so much of a surprise when you consider the issues they faced um, last year in terms of of. Yes, the, China's sorry. yeah domestic economy, and I think they they had their own stock market issues to to deal with as well. Um, but I suspect they'll be back. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I um, uh, first of all, you know, I, I I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad strategy to sort of buy and then take a year to digest before buying again. Mm -hmm. um, and second of all, as you say, there are. Um, there are domestic factors in terms of being a listed company in China um, that perhaps make this not an optimal time 
to be making acquisitions. Very diplomatically uh, but, put. But but I would I would be surprised um, if we didn't see Blue Focus mm. back on this list, um, maybe towards the end of this year. I think I might be surprised though if I did see Dentsu on the list at the end of next year. Um, what are we to make of Dentsu's apparently fleeting foray in the public relations market? They bought Mitchell in 2013. This was at the time um, supposed to be the, the kind of cornerstone for a PR acquisition strategy, um, but but nothing seems to have happened. Um, yeah, I, I, Mitchell, I think, is a great firm. It was a terrific acquisition, a lease. Um, Mitchell went into this uh, with a great deal of uh, enthusiasm for the acquisition process, mm. but it's um, it, it's looking increasingly as if Dentsu at the, the highest level doesn't have mm -hmm. a strategy for public relations. It's worth noting that I think the year after they bought Mitchell, they um, they merged with Aegis. Um, yeah. Which was, you know, that's a huge, huge merger. I suspect that's been taking up a lot of their um, attention and time. Uh, but it, it's a bit of a shame. Um, moving on, looking at acquisitions overall, though, one of the other things that seems to, to, to jump out is the presence of private equity in so many of these deals. I mean, how new a phenomenon is that? Well, I think private equity has always been sort of floating around the periphery of our industry, but, um, you know, there, there are plenty of firms out there that have taken private equity investment over the last 10 years or so and, um, and, and, and used it either to, to grow or to stay um, in air quotes independent. Mm -hmm. um, but this year... Um, I think the influence of private equity um, on on M and A activity in the PR sector was um, more dramatic than we've ever seen it before. Right. Um, it, it, if you look at the um, if you look at the major acquirers, for example, um, there's Teneo, which um, which bought Blue Rubicon and a couple of other firms in the UK, mm. um, supported by um, private equity. Right. And then there are two um, leading independent PR firms, Lorente and Cuenca in Spain, and and now throughout sort of the Latin world, mm -hmm. um, and four communications in the UK, which mm -hmm. received private equity investment themselves over the last twelve months, and have used that 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 uh, investment to go out and make acquisitions, mm -hmm. um, and then you know the sort of uh, the number three deal on our top ten list uh, oh, yes. was uh, SKD Knickerbocker, mm. uh, which was acquired by Mark Penn and his private equity uh, investment company, Stagwell. And they just bought another firm yesterday, actually. Okay, they so um, so it is there is there is more private equity money in the industry than ever before, mm. and it is fueling more activity than ever before. Why? Um, because that suggests well, that private equity firms are, are seeing the public relations industry as a good investment bet. Yeah, I, they, I was they say, one, one would like to one would like to think that um, 
that that very smart money people have taken a look at our industry, um, concluded that it is ripe for um, growth and consolidation, mm-hmm. um, and decided that they can make a lot of money betting on public relations firms. Mm. Okay. Um, you know, I I I I think. There's never there's never been a really successful roll up, no, in the PR business, um, and I do worry that these firms are underestimating the um, human element, the the chemistry element, the the you know mm-hmm. the the fact that this is a business um, in which you know the assets are unusually fungible. They can walk out the door at any moment and do things elsewhere um, very easily. Um, but but you know it would be nice to think that uh, that that they see um, a great upside in our business over the next few years. I mean we do. So does it worry you at all though that that all of these private equity firms you know they're looking for an exit at some point? So you know there needs to be another monetizing event, as it's sometimes called. Um, so another sale of some description, um, or, or a, a return on, on their equity. Um, a little, because I think you can end up um, being in a sort of limbo um, with a you know with a private equity partner that's coming to the end of its um, you know projected investment period, and um, and then you need a liquidity event, and you have to you have to manage for that event rather than for the long term, um, if you're not very careful. Mm, um, yeah, and, yeah. and so, we've seen that I think with, with some yeah. firms. Yeah, and um, you know it it can have a um, it can have a negative impact on both growth and uh, profit margins. Mm. So let's talk finally about. Um, a firm that you know very well, uh, the world's, I think, fourth biggest independent firm at this point, APCO Worldwide. Um, we ran a big analysis uh, within the last week, I think, um, because they're also looking now for a new investment partner. They have, um, they have a private equity company called Wind River mm-hmm. um, that has, since they bought themselves back from gray uh wind river has owned i think around 30 percent. they don't disclose exactly but it, it, i think it's around 30 percent of apco um that stake is now up for sale after 10 years uh which which has also i guess triggered the the you know speculation perhaps that maybe apco would would sell the whole business i mean how big a how big a deal do you see this being um so if I mean if Apco is sold to, um, I mean I, it it is hard for me to imagine Marjorie selling to a traditional sort of communications holding company, uh, given no. experiences with Gray and WPP over, yeah. over the years. Yeah. Um, but you know if 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 she decided to sell to. Um, a significant player already in the industry. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I know Taneo's name has been floated mm-hmm. as a potential acquirer. Yeah. 
uh, that would be that would be a very significant deal indeed. I mean, you know, um, Apco is um, you know Apco is one of the top twenty full service public public affairs driven firms in the world. Mm. Uh, the largest of them probably that is public affairs driven. Yeah, although they uh, don't like that description. No, but so. but sorry, uh, most of their work is still in public policy, crisis issues, mm. um, that that area. That that's the core of their business still. Mm. Um, I, I think you know. I think obviously, when something of that size changes hands, it would certainly dwarf the biggest deal of the last twelve months. Yeah, um, it would be very significant indeed. Um, I think it's more likely it will just be a, a sale of a minority, though. Yeah. Um, in, in which case, that I mean, you know, then again, that depends on Apco's ambitions mm -hmm. um, and um, and the and the extent to which it can implement them. Um, certainly, from an outside perspective, it looks as if the firm has plateaued over the last three or four years. There hasn't been significant growth. Um, under the surface, I think they've been remaking the business in, in some fairly interesting ways. Mm -hmm. um, they've made a couple of acquisitions of their own. Uh, Strawberry Frog, when it was acquired, made uh, quite a splash. It uh, did, but then I think but, it went but out it's been with quiet. a whimper. Yeah, um, but you know they're, they're, they've expanded geographically. Um, they, they've diversified somewhat away from that public public affairs core, mm. um, but there isn't a huge amount of momentum there right now. And uh, you know, a new acquisition would would create the opportunity for some new momentum. Indeed, um, and and lastly, I mean, I think what's clear coming from from you know your analysis from from the APCO deal, from Revive Health, is that M&A is, is, is really active in the public relations industry. Um, do you, and presumably you're, you're expecting that to continue in 2016. Yeah, it, it isn't quite the frenzy mm. that it was um, a decade ago. And I, I imagine it's actually probably more than a decade ago because you know, I go back to the, the period just before the dot-com bubble burst when oh, when there, there yeah. really was an acquisition frenzy. I mean, I'm guessing that the numbers were upwards of 100 in a year at that time. Okay. Um, I, think, I think what we're seeing right now is a much more sustainable, realistic level of activity mm. um, and a much more strategic approach. Mm. Um, so this is not just wildly gobbling up everything that looks good. Um, this is buying for a reason. Um, it's buying in a way that is designed to add value for the long term. Um, and it's buying at prices that I think are um, sensible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I see no reason, you know, barring some sort of macroeconomic event, um, why the current level of activity shouldn't go on. Well, and we'll be watching it closely. Um, yeah. Thank you very much, Paul. Um, we look forward to having you back on here soon. I think you've got 
You're, you're going to do a podcast in New York, are you not? My... That's the plan. I'm trying to line it up as we speak. With so. Jack, Martin Jack Martin from yep. Hill and Knowlton? Well, that will be very interesting um, yep. when it appears. So thanks very much. All right. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Thanks to Marketeers 4DC for producing today's show. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. 